This is Darrell Alia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 111. Isn't that like good luck or something? I don't know. But I mean, it has to be, right? Because this episode is titled, How to Profitably Overpay for Real Estate? Well, if you think it's too good to be true, it isn't. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place mr hollywood himself presents the before the millions podcast and now your host deray olalaye what it do btm tribe we are back for another installment another episode of the before the millions podcast and guys the guest on today's show let's just let's start this show off just by saying that anything is possible the guest on today's show is not much younger than me. I think he's in his mid-20s. And in eighth grade, Nick Prefontaine, today's guest, was in a major accident. Now, he's going to talk about his accident on today's show. He's going to get into it. But the aftermath of the accident left Nick in a coma for three weeks, three entire weeks. Now, imagine waking up from your coma and the first things the doctors tell you is that you're never going to walk again. You're never going to talk again. You're never going to live a normal life ever again. Now you're in eighth grade. This is the outlook of the rest of your life. This is the beginning of the rest of your life. What do you do? How do you cope with that? Do you cope with that? Do you challenge that? Now, because Nick had a had an amazing support system around him, a few of the people in his support system have been on the show. In episode 60, his dad was on the show, Chris Prefontaine. And in episode 74, his brother-in-law and one of my mastermind members was on the show. So Nick had a pretty stellar support system and he talks about it on the show. But get this, a few months after he wakes up out of a coma, he literally runs on two feet out of the hospital and he begins his real estate journey and he studies under the tutelage of his father. And he realizes through that process that he has a really, really good knack for the buyer side of a real estate transaction. So finding buyers building those relationships with buyers and equipping buyers with the tools necessary to purchase their next property. Now, these aren't any type of buyers. The title of today's episode is How to Profitably Overpay for Real Estate. So on today's episode, we'll discuss exactly what type of buyers these are and how to get these types of deals done to where you can overpay and still be profitable on your next real estate transaction. Now, I personally absolutely love this strategy. It's something that my clients and I build on every single day. And it's one of the most powerful strategies out there that nobody's really talking about. But guess who does with his clients? Me. (laughs) And guess who else does? Today's guest, Mr. Nick 
Prefontaine. So you're in store for a really, really good episode. Now, before we get into all the good stuff, if you haven't already yet subscribed to this podcast, go ahead and click the subscribe button. Turn on your notifications. Let your mobile device or your internet browser notify you whenever an episode of this podcast releases. Now, we release an episode every Tuesday morning, but in the next few weeks, I may just be dropping a couple bonus episodes. So you definitely want to make sure that you're getting those notifications. Okay. Are you subscribed? Good. Now, the next thing I want you guys to do is head over to Instagram and connect with me personally. Let me know that you listen to and you just subscribed to the podcast. Let's connect. And especially you guys, every single one of you, you guys are members of the Before the Millions tribe. So head over to Instagram. My Instagram handle is Lalia. That's D-A-R-A-Y-O-L-A-L-E-Y-E. And just drop me a note, drop me a DM. Now to be an official member of the tribe, to be an ironclad, lifelong, solid member of the Before the Millions tribe, one other thing you have to do, head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash group and join our tribe, join our Facebook group. It's completely free and you're going to interact with a ton of other listeners and investors and actually previous guests that have been on the show. And of course, me, myself. So head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash group and join our Facebook group and become a part of our tribe today. So now that you're subscribed, you and I are best friends on Instagram and you've joined the Before the Millions tribe. I think it's time to get into the tip of the week. DeRay's tip of the week. Tip, 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 tip. Guys, look, sometimes while everybody's going one way, you got to go the other way. So like everybody's zigging. You have to zag to pick up any steam, to get any progress, to get to your goals. So let me give you an example of how you can zag it and go against the grain and possibly get some deals done. So for instance, in my camp, myself and my clientele, the way we like to approach a targeted list per se is that we like to look for properties that have what we like to call clean title. So when a property has clean title, that means that they're in layman's terms, it means that there aren't going to be a whole lot of hiccups during the closing process. In terms of liens from other parties and questions about legal ownership, like who owns, who actually owns the property. So something that most investors don't do, and quite frankly, most investors don't have to do because the title company does it for you, is title research. Now, I personally do title research and I have all of my clients do title research, preliminary title research, because again, we like to weed out properties that have clouded titles. Now, again, going back to zigging versus zagging, just because that's the way we do things doesn't mean that you can't come in the real estate game and only go after properties that have clouded titles because it's a challenge, because it's very hard to work through, because almost nobody is going to want to deal with that situation. You may be able to find some amazing deals in some complicated situations. And because most of us don't want to deal with that, you have an entry point, you have a niche and you can utilize that. So again, while everybody's zigging, you may just want to zag. A lot of investors may only want property that has a certain amount of equity in the property, right? And I know a lot of investors who filter for that. We filter for that on some of our lists, but here's where we're zagging while everybody else is zigging. We also have strategies to where we can help out a homeowner who doesn't have a whole lot of equity, or we could help out a homeowner who has no equity, or we could help out a homeowner who's upside down and still make money on the deal. So again, while most realtors, while most investors may just shy away from those types of deals, myself and my clients, we eat those deals up. Nick, today's guest on today's show, 
him and his team, they do the same thing over there. So figuring out how to zag while everyone else is zigging may just be your entry point, may just be your niche, may be your foundation. So always question what people are doing and why they're doing those things. Again, we're not running from clouded titles because it's not possible to get a deal done. There are plenty of people who only attack clouded titles because they know that nobody else wants to do that. Nobody wants to spend a ton of time growing and cultivating and managing and picking through a generic list. People would rather just buy those lists that are super targeted, right? But if you can create a targeted list, for instance, if you have a a pretty good expired list or you have a pretty good pre-foreclosure list and you want to start list stacking with maybe like a code violations list, I guarantee you not many people are looking at code violations as a list. It's a small, 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 small subset of people. But if you list that code violations list in your county with the pre-foreclosure list, you're creating a pretty targeted list of motivated sellers. Maybe extra work, maybe extra time, maybe a little bit more intensive. But again, while everybody else is zigging, you may just want to zag. So if you're in the trenches and you're, you're trying to get your first deal done, you're trying to get your second deal done and things are not clicking, think about what ways and from what areas you could add extra value or you can take the extra step that most people don't take. Now, where it gets really interesting is there are pockets in which you can follow the popular trend, but kind of zig a little bit to find your own niche. So whatever it is, don't zag immediately from the onset, like follow a proven path or a proven system a good majority of the way. And when you notice something, when you see an inefficiency, again, as an entrepreneur, you're looking for problems to solve. So when you see a need or you see a desire or you see a problem that you can solve, that's when when you decide to zag. And if you understood that, take that and do something with it. If that went over your head, just go back and try to listen to that again. But if you're stuck right now, it's possible that you may just need to hit a quick zag while everyone else is focused on zigging. Now I'm about to jig on out of this tip of the week and head to our feature presentation. And now your feature presentation. Nick, how's it going today? It's going awesome, Dory. I'm happy to be here. I am excited that you are here. We're going to talk about the process of finding tenant buyers. I think that marketing your real estate investments to tenant buyers gives you a whole lot more flexibility in the options that you have as far as an exit strategy. So it's something that we haven't yet talked about on the show, and I'm super excited to kind of get into some of that stuff. But we have some ground to cover, Nick. We got to talk about some other things first. We got to get into the time machine. We got we to get to know you. We got to figure out how all of this began for you. So maybe just take us back. Take us back to a time in your life. Maybe the first time you really thought about real estate as a viable vehicle for your future, a viable vehicle that you could use to create success and wealth for yourself and your family. When was maybe the first inception of this, of this thought? Uh, well, for me, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different just because I grew up in a family that was real estate oriented. When I was younger, my well, like real little, my dad was a builder. Then in the 90s, when I was probably around 10 years old, uh, yeah, right around there, he started becoming a realtor and then he opened his own brokerage. So I grew up in the business. That, that's really all I knew about. But as far as like a viable avenue for myself in one wanting to be interested in real estate and wanting to get started in real estate, I think I could probably remember back to when I was about 14 or 15. And we actually at the time were, were living in Massachusetts still in Shrewsbury, and we had a pool out back. And I remember very vividly floating around on a um, on a floaty in that pool. In reading reading a book, 
that book was uh, Robert Kawasaki's The Cashflow Quadrant. And that's, that's what really started to spark my interest in real estate. And then throughout the rest of high school, I was doing various tasks with, with uh, my parents had a few renovation projects like raised roof projects where they go into neighborhoods, buy a, a ranch, a single story home and raise the roof and um, make a profit that way. They also had condo conversions where they would go into three family homes and condo each floor of the three families. So I actually worked, I worked in all aspects of that, uh, did the manual stuff, digging trenches and holes for footings and stuff on those raised roof projects. Also, I remember, I actually look back upon it fondly. I remember going to those three families where they were condoing each floor of the three family and working hand in hand with the handyman, with the contractor who was the one responsible for doing the majority of the work. And I actually got to learn a lot, got to do drop ceilings, like all things, all nitty gritty things like that of construction and got to really learn the ropes that way. So that was, that was a time in my life that I really look back on that I look back fondly growing up when I was about in high school of real estate because I did that along with when I was in high school after my, I got my license along with doing pre-foreclosure doors where I would take a list and notice the defaults and go knock on their doors and try to set appointments up with the investor who would come down and meet with them and try to buy their home. Those are, those are all things that I had going on when I was in high school, when I had my license. So I was always really involved one way or the other, but I can point back to that, that one book, uh, Robert Kawasaki, The Cashflow Quadrant. When you were in high school, you had a major life event kind of changed the trajectory of kind of your life and, how, and your perspective on life and kind of the way mm-hmm. you saw your future. And what, was this major life event before or after you started knocking on pre-foreclosures and kind of walk us through that event and kind of how things unraveled for you after that? It's actually kind of funny because I didn't realize the significance of the fact that I did all this stuff that I was talking about to you in high school after my accident. So I was on stage at our last event and it kind of it kind of hit me that I was going into not so good areas like um, you know low income areas and knocking on doors only two years after coming out of my coma and having okay my wait 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 accident. rewind this for us tell me tell me tell me exactly what happened and and you talk about an accident or a snowboard accident what what was that accident and how did that kind of happen for you the day was February fifth two thousand three. And um, I was in eighth grade. I was going to ski club, packed up all my stuff for ski club before. And later that day, we leave early if we were going to ski club to get to the mountain in time. So on the bus, we had brought our stuff. And I was getting ready. I noticed I forgot one thing. And that's my helmet. I usually bring, I didn't wear it all the time. I'm not going to, you know. Say that, say that I was a saint or anything, but I wore when I went to ski club, usually. So that particular day, I was when I was getting ready on the bus, I noticed that I forgot my helmet. So we got to the mountain, and because all the kids, most of the kids didn't get ready on the bus, they headed inside to get ready. But we were already ready because we brought our stuff on the bus to get ready. So we went up. We were on the chairlift up. 
I noticed that it was very icy. People were wiping out everywhere because it had been raining. Needless to say, it wasn't, I wasn't a, a beginner. So I, I felt pretty confident in my abilities. I, I got to the top, buckled in, and headed straight for the biggest jump with all my speed. And going up to the jump, I caught the edge of my snowboard, which kind of threw me off balance, if you know what I mean by that. Going down, it, it just kind of, but I was, I was too close to the top to stop. So I had to go, I was forced to go off the jump. So in the air, I went like this. And then I landed on my head. Oh, wow. So I was later told that I landed on my head, that I wasn't wearing a helmet. And the doctors told my parents that I probably wouldn't walk, talk, or eat on my own ever again. So that was, that was a story. That's the story of the incident, of my accident. Then less than three months later, I ran out of Franciscan Children's Hospital in Boston after going through a lot of therapy, obviously, to gain, my, gain back my, my weight because I lost a lot of weight when I was in the coma. I was in my coma for about 21 days, three weeks, and that was mostly sedated. Because they had to, they had to keep me sedated. Because they said if I woke up, the swelling in my brain would have increased and I would have died. So it was partially sedated, and I say that because three weeks to be in a coma, yeah, that that's a long time for someone. But I really don't remember a month because I had to come off the come off the drugs. That is incredible, and I think about your state of mind coming out of that coma and your state of mind to your possible new life. And, you know, just thinking about the resilience that you have to have to be able to go through something like that. And you, I mean, the words that you used were, I ran out of the hospital, like, and I don't know if you mean that literally, right? I, like, is that something literal or, or is, is it more so of a metaphor? Because you, you going from, hey, you can never walk again, you can never talk again, you, your life will never be the same to I got up and I ran out of the hospital less than three months later, I mean, Talk about some of the mindset work that you did during that period. And I know that some of this is going to translate over to your work now and how persistent you may be in real estate, but talk about some of the mindset work that you had to muster up at that time. Well, it wasn't, I always say, I always say that I'm very fortunate to have the family that I have because if it wasn't, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to be here today and make that recovery. Uh, my dad at the time was doing a lot of motivational speaking and a lot of speaking and presenting for a lot of companies at that time. He had, I believe, just sold or sold a few years earlier his real estate brokerage firm. So he was doing a lot of speaking and consulting at that time. And he was all about having affirmations and keeping the positive mindset, all that stuff. So all around my hospital room, everywhere I looked, was signs like each day I grow stronger and stronger with every step I take and just affirmations all over my room everywhere I looked and I couldn't walk at the time so it wasn't like I could get away from this stuff not that I wanted to but yeah. yeah so that the mindset piece is huge I think because my goal since I got in the hospital, since I was in the hospital, once I got to Franciscan about a month after I 
came out of my coma at the intensive care unit at UMass Med, uh, Medical Center in Worcester. So I came out of my coma. Once they stabilized me, I was transported to Franciscan. And from the very beginning at Franciscan, my goal was to run out of the hospital. Uh, that was that was always my goal, and that's that was always in front of me. And that all my therapists knew my goal, uh, and they were, they all did what they could to make that a reality. Wow, that's an incredible story. So, I want to kind of talk about the progression. The very next few maybe weeks or months or years from the accident, and what what are you up to? What are you doing? I mean, this is this is post eighth grade. Um, you have all of high school ahead of you. And what's kind of next for you? And I know you talked about getting into pre-foreclosures. What does your new life look like? That's a very good question. I, when I first got out of my accident, I couldn't go back to school. I couldn't go back to eighth grade. I remember when I got released from Franciscan, it was April, I believe, April 23rd of 2003. And obviously, we know anyone that knows that was in school at that time, your kind of going into your last month or two and you're kind of getting everything wrapped up and getting ready to move on. Well, I had missed since February 5th at that time. So when I went back to school, I couldn't just reacclimate to to the classes, my regular eighth grade class. But I still love to go to school. It's funny, it's funny to hear myself say that because in high in high school I didn't I didn't love it. I couldn't wait to be done with it and start working. But at that time, I couldn't wait to go to the school to see, just see my friends. And so I would, I would go to school. And when I was there, I had a private tutor. At the time, my energy, even though I got discharged from inpatient at Franciscan Children's Hospital, I still had to do, I still had to do like six months of outpatient therapy of physical, occupational, and speech therapy. So the work wasn't over when I ran out of the hospital. I I still had a lot of work to do. So I would go to school, school, which is me being with the tutor in the morning from 9 or 10 to 12. Then I would go down and either peek in the classroom if, if my classmates we're still in class or I would go connect with everyone at lunch and just say hi. And then I would leave. And it wasn't like I was leaving to go home. Like, oh, easy. Nick gets a half day. I had to go to outpatient therapy from about one thirty to four uh, physical, occupational and speech therapy. Oh, wow. That's a very good question. I'm never going to ask that. Yeah. I think about, you know, you're picking up skills that you've had before. Like, I mean, you had to learn speech all over again. Like that, <laughs> you had to, I mean, and I think about the level of difficulty for you, like even, even learning to walk again. I mean, and I don't want to be insensitive. Which, which process was harder for you and why? I don't re- recall. I don't remember, Dre, having difficulty or being frustrated or, or just having difficulty surrounding any of those things. I just feel like, and that's how I am today, I just feel like when something is put in front of me, whatever it is, that it's not necessarily good or bad, you just have to get, you just have to get past it, get to the next thing, 
get to what you want, your goal. Like my goal was to run out of the hospital. After I was home, my goal was to be, not have to go to physical occupational or speech therapy. So I just, I don't know, it sounds, it sounds pretty elementary, but when something, when something's put in front of me, I just, that's what I do. I, mm-hmm. I do what the next thing is that's put in front of me. At what point did real estate become the next thing for you? And talk about the unfolding of, of that for you. My dad had books uh, all around. We, had, we actually had a, a little library when I was growing up. And, uh, and I asked him, what, what, is the, what is the thing that I, that I should read to get started? And he, he gave me that. And then I kept going back to him and kept asking him things about, okay, what's next? What's next? What's, what's next? That kind of thing for books. And as far as shortly after that, I think I started doing the the work on the Razor Roof projects, like the just the manual contractor stuff, uh, the nitty gritty, and then um, the work with the contractor. And then I was even when I was a junior and senior. Actually, I think when I was a senior, I was even calling expired listings for him, trying to get trying to get him appointments. I w- I didn't have my license. I was just trying to be helpful to him and set up appointments for him. Yep. Yep. And then eventually you decided to get your license, correct? Yeah, I got my, I actually got my license. I started, I graduated in um, May of 2007, took the summer off. And then in the fall, in September, I went to uh, Hector Padilla, one of his mastermind buddies that he met in a Mike Ferry coaching group. I went out with him. That was my first it was exciting for me because it was, it was like one of the first times that I went away on my own. I had my own hotel room and everything. And I did a one-on-one, pretty much a one-on-one seminar with him. I just, his course was one-on-one over a weekend. So I did that with him. Then I flew back on the red eye. And then that night started my course to get my real estate license. And then I got my real estate license in March. I don't well, have it any longer. But what was what was your reasoning for getting the license at the time? My reasoning, I wanted, um, I just what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a uh, real estate agent. I'm trying to draw the parallel between you getting into the investment side of things. Sometimes, oftentimes, there there isn't this overall grand plan to where when we look back on things, you know, in hindsight, 2020, we're like, oh, that was actually a good idea, or that wasn't a good idea. But was there mm-hmm. an overall grand plan to where you're like, I need to get my, my my license so that I have access to certain things so that I can eventually become an investor, or was it like, hey, this is just another form of income that I can put into my invest? Like, what was what was kind of your grand plan for getting your license? And I know you no longer have it anymore, so it may not be part of the plan anymore, but but what was the plan at the time? There was no plan. There was there really was no plan at the time. I just got my real got my real estate license to be a realtor, to be a real estate agent. I was successful in that despite despite the market crashing shortly after me getting my license. I all I knew was a bad market. So I was able to survive and support myself and then in 2014, my dad mentioned to me that he was he needed some help. He was going to hire someone to handle his buyers for all of his properties. He just couldn't handle it anymore. And he said, I'd rather not hire someone outside because him and I, him and I, since I started, have always shared an office. We weren't necessarily always doing the same thing. But we always shared an office. We worked. We always worked out of an office together. So he said to me that 
he doesn't want to hire someone different and he wants, so I was like, I was reluctant at first actually, which is kind of funny. I was reluctant like, no, 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 I'm, I'm too busy. I got my own thing going on here. You know, I'm, you know, busy, busy. And, um, <laughs> I told him, no, I, I turned it down the first, the first couple of times he asked me, but then, but then I started warming up to the idea and I was like, well, if it's not going to interfere and I can sell my license and still sell real estate, I guess, I'll try the marketing. I started helping with marketing. That morphed into the buyers. And then in January of 16, 2016, I just said, this doesn't even make sense for me to keep my license anymore because, I mean, my income was here as a realtor, here the money I was making from him. And then, trying to figure out how to do this. <laughs> over the years, it went like this. To so, so, so what Nick is currently uh, uh, showing us, exhibiting, is a flip flop between income levels. <laughs> uh, a lot of you guys who are listening to, uh, via audio, it's uh, but yeah, he's flip flopping in, in income levels from uh, him making almost one hundred percent of his money on the on the realty side and no money from dad and the uh, I guess the co the coaching and the buying the uh, yeah the, the investing it side invest it was the investing uh, totally at first yeah I wasn't really involved any bit in the in the coaching because. At the beginning, at least because I had to learn the business. So, I why, why do you why do you, why do you think you shied away from it for for so long? It was a family I always, business. Because I always <laughs> all right. So look, he was doing something else before that, and then um, he was successful in that. He was doing network marketing before, which you want to call it before the like this this niche this specialty in like terms deals. Yeah. He was doing that, so probably like 2010, 2011, 2012, I would go to events that he would have, and the people would talk to me there, like his guests or whatever. I would just go to support him, and I would, I would like, he's my dad, so I would say hi to him and support him and everything, but people would be like, oh my God, why, why are you doing, why are you doing this? Like your family and your, your dad, you're, they're doing so well doing, doing this, this business. Why don't you do this? I was like, well, what does that say about me if I'm just jumping and leaving and going to any, everything that's working? I want to figure this out. I want to figure out what I'm doing. I want to be my own person. So I don't think that's something I've, I've discussed with anyone before. So yeah. no. I don't know. No, I, I appreciate you asking that. Yeah. And I think that, that, that I love that you, you even shared that, that insight because you're like, Hey, I want to be able to prove not only, you know, I want to be, it's more so to prove to yourself, right. That yeah, I can, it is. I, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I totally get that. Now, when you realized the, and the, your dad may have realized it in you before you realized it in yourself, but when you realized the power and the impact and what you can do in the space that he was, he was offering up for you that he was just like, Hey, like I see an opportunity here and I think that you'd be a great fit for this. At what point did you start to take a liking to the buyer side of things to where you were like, Hey, I'm going to kind of take this by the horns because I love this stuff. Like when did that click for you? Mm, probably, probably. Okay. So I first started helping him with the marketing in December of 2014 about three or four months after that, Duray was the, okay, you got to help me with the buyers. And I was like, all right. So I was already familiar somewhat with the business. So I started answering the buyers and I started just, I don't know. I started really enjoying it a few months. I would say a few months after that, probably two or three months after that. So mid 2015, because the, 
just the attitude, just people's attitude was so much different. Just when I was a realtor, there are, and I'm not saying, not saying realtors are, you know, bad people or, you know, someone's better than someone else. All I'm saying is that there seemed to be, to me, a lot more of a need for what my dad was was doing and what we were doing as investors rather than as a realtor because as a realtor i felt like there was only one way that i could help people i could help them sell a house or help them buy a house that's it this way as an investor I, there's so much more that I could do. I could help a seller. We could help a seller out of a bad situation where they were stuck. They didn't feel like there was any other way for them to move on with their life. We, we can help them by buying their property, buying their property and helping them move on with their life. And then on the other side, there's this huge pool of buyers, especially more so in 2014 and 15 than now just because the, I don't know, the environment, it just seems like everything. It's softening. It's softening yeah. for people to be able to get credit. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like there are, hard, there are higher interest rates and everything associated with that. But there's just so much more. And still to this day, there, there's just so much more of a market to help the buyers because there's either you can get a loan today or you can't get a loan. Sorry, I can't help you. Click. Because people don't want to work with, or lenders don't want to work with, or realtors don't want to work with people who aren't qualified, and they they just feel like, oh, okay, I can't help you, or at the very best, at the very least, refer them to a credit enhancement company to help them get their credit to a point where they can buy. So there was there's this huge gap that that I really, I don't know, I felt I felt more like I was making a difference, if that yeah. makes sense. No, it does. And let me let me rewind a little bit because we're getting into some of the, the, the amazing strategy portion of our show, which we're talking about, you know, the end buyer being a tenant buyer um, of a real estate asset that you have or that you have under contract. So uh, I just want to kind of highlight that most investors, especially wholesalers and fixers and flippers, they need to be able to purchase property at a certain price point for it to be a good mm -hmm. deal. So they need to be yeah. able to purchase property at 50 cents on the dollar or 60 cents on the dollar. And if they can't, they're going to move on from those deals. Realtors, they're in the same boat. They are in a slightly similar boat in that there needs to be enough equity in the property for them to be able to get their commission, right? So if you're selling a house for, you know, 180 and the, the value of the house is 180, there's not a whole lot of equity there or any equity at all for a realtor to even be excited about like working with you. So there's, there, there's conflict there. And then I think about the fact that we are not wholesalers. We're not realtors. We're not fixers and flippers. We're not even rental property investors. We're real estate entrepreneurs. And just, our we're job- buying, We're just buying property. Just yep. buying property in your area. So our, job, our job is actually, you know, it's even simpler. It's literally to solve problems. Yeah. To solve problems. Like the more problems we solve, the more money we make. Like in the, mm -hmm. and the more people we help, right? So it's, it's an abundance mindset. So if you walk into every situation, like how can I solve this problem? Again, you as a real estate entrepreneur- as opposed to a fixer and flipper or a wholesaler or a realtor approaching a motivated seller, somebody whose house is about to go in foreclosure, whatever the case may be, you have all these tools in your tool belt 
and these people have limited tools, limited resources, you're able to present the seller with a whole lot more options than any other person. And because of that, you're able to approach the situation in a different light. You're able to approach the situation like, hey, how can I help? Hey, what's going on? Tell me about your situation and provide the best service for them. Whereas yeah. if you're if you're a wholesaler, you're like, well, oh, man, how do I get how do I get this deal to work? How do I how do I fit this this seller into my wholesale model, right? So it's almost like all about me, me, me. But the way we approach is like, hey. I'm a real estate entrepreneur. I have all these tools in my tool belt. Let me figure out the best way to help you. And you're able to do that because of creative exit strategies, such as having tenant buyers. So I kind of wanted to explain that to the listeners who are just like, hey, Nick is like moving 100 miles per hour. We have no idea what he's talking about. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just excited. <laughs> I love I'm, it. I'm throwing, I'm throwing a lot at you. So I love sorry. it. I love it. So what, what I want to kind of get across to them now is the fact that Having an exit strategy of tenant buyers allows you to pay more for a property, allows you to do deals that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And I don't want to steal your spotlight. So I want you to kind of get into that strategy for us really quick. So why having this exit strategy is important and why it helps us do more deals than the average person. Sure. So as far as the seller, what they're looking to do. So a lot of the, I'll just use this one example to kind of make it simple. A lot of the a lot of the leads or the leads that we go after are expired listings, homes that couldn't sell for one reason or the other on the open market. So those people are much more likely to be open to hearing about creative options to get them to their full cash price. So basically a delayed cash sale. Because they've already tested the market. They, They've quite literally tested the market out for whether it's 90, uh, 90 days, 100, um, 90 days, 180 days, or even a year. So they've already been on the market. So they already know that the market isn't going to pay them what they're looking for for their home. So that's why they're much more open to listen to creative options that we can offer that we can offer them. Yeah. And, you know, before we get into uh, some of these creative options, again, I want to highlight the fact that you are solving the problem of a seller. Like a seller is going through a problem that a realtor cannot solve. They obviously have tried to list their property with a realtor and they tried to list their property for 180 and the property hasn't been able to sell for 180. Now you have a strategy in which that property can sell for 180 and maybe even more because of your end buyer. Again, if you were a wholesaler and, you're, and you want to buy a property that's worth 180, you're not paying more than 90 to $100,000 for that property, depending yeah. on the region, right? But because we are real estate entrepreneurs, we have a cer- certain exit strategies um, like owner financing, um, subject tools, and assigning contracts to, uh, to tenant buyers and things like that you're able to have a much more attractive offer for your seller. But not only that, you're serving a community that hasn't really been served, right? Because Mm -hmm. the end buyer is no longer an investor, right? And an investor is not going to pay top dollar. They're going to, they're going to want a discount. The end buyer is not even a regular home buyer. Home buyer is probably going to want to pay market, right? But you have a regular home buyer who doesn't have the credit. Or maybe they don't have the job. They don't have. They haven't. They don't have the. They haven't been at their job long enough, right? They can't get financing. Mm-hmm. But you have these buyers, and they maybe have a great. Um, they have great means to buy the property. You have. They have a down payment, and yeah. they're not being served by the banks. They're not being served by the credit unions. They're not being served by other lenders. But they. I mean, in in our eyes, they are credit worthy, right? So you can cater to this target demographic and be like, "Hey, I have a solution for you," and that solution allows you to buy the property for 
quote unquote top dollar, which is what the seller wants, but you're also able to put a tenant buyer in the property and they're able to maximize on their benefits because now they're able to buy a home in which they weren't able to buy before because they didn't have financing. But through your creative strategy, they're able to buy that home now with that strategy and be a homeowner as opposed to not being a homeowner. Again, solving the problem of a seller and solving the problem of a tenant buyer. So Mm -hmm. I want to I want to highlight what a tenant buyer is. And then I want you to highlight for us maybe two or three ways that some of the listeners can start finding tenant buyers. Because again, this strategy allows you not only to look at deals and be like, well, I have to pay, I can only pay X amount. I can only pay, you know, whatever that discount is. But now I have a wider range. I have a wider way of options because I have this creative strategy of tenant buyer. So first mm-hmm. kind of explain to us exactly. I know I've done a little bit explaining you have as well, but holistically, what is a tenant buyer and how do we find these people? So a tenant buyer, there is approximately, I, I used to say 18%, but it's it's more like 20% of the market that can walk into a bank and get a loan today at good rate, at competitive rates and, you know, get good, pro, get access to good programs, that kind of thing. So that other bigger pool of buyers, that other 80%, let's call it, for example's sake, they're not all good. And I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm sure they're all fabulous people. Um, but now they're not all good buyers in there, though. Now, out of that 80%, there's probably a large portion in there that make, first off, great incomes that can support whatever home or in whatever price range that we're selling. And I'm just, I have my board in front of me so I can tell you. So I'm looking at homes all the way from on the low end, 184, 184.9 to the high end, like half a million. But the, that, that can go up usually to a million and maybe, maybe even a touch over a million. So all price ranges of that. So those people can support those homes to live in and run the home just like it was their own. And also they have the money set aside for the down payment. It might not be the 20% that a lot of the banks are going to require, but they do have a good amount down. Uh, Usually our program requires three to 10% that you have to come in with for a down payment. And then if they're coming in on the lower end of that spectrum, like to see them get it up closer to the 10% over the course of their, of their lease purchase agreement with us. I love that. I love that. Places, uh, places that you can advertise. I think that's where you were going next, right? Yeah. So so let's, let's talk about three different ways to corral tenant buyers, to corral a list of tenant buyers and to actually have, so when you do get your, your, your next deal, when you, you already have buyers lined up, how do you, and how do you, what, what's your number one way for acquiring new tenant buyers? Yeah, it's amazing. The, uh, we get asked that all the time. And uh, that was actually my dad and I's concern when we first started is what, what are we going to do about buyers? And do we, have to, do we have to buy a list of buyers and everything? You don't have to worry about the buyers. The buyers are going to come. When you advertise a home on terms, on rent-to-own, owner financing, that type of thing, when you're advertising that, you're opening, the, opening up the pool of buyers to five times more buyers approximately. You never have to worry about the buyers. It's what we do have to worry about, or not worry about, worry is the wrong word, uh, DeRay, but what we are doing is there's a process that, that we've created to sift and sort these buyers 
so that you're only dealing with the best ones. And that process is the education process before we're even getting them into the home and, or even answering any questions about the property for the most part. We want to we send them to some education on our website. Make sure you see the video that goes over how our program works. If you're still interested, give me a call back. We can get you into the home. That's going to pre-qualify a lot of the buyers out once I understand that, ooh, I'm actually buying a home. I, I got to have a down payment. I have to have money to live in the home. Once they find that out, that sifts out a lot of the buyers. So only the best ones are calling you back. And then, then so so start, walk us through the beginning of that funnel. So to even have potential tenant buyers go through that funnel. Yeah. What are some of your advertising lines? Oh I yeah, I knew. Yeah, I, yeah, I get. I skipped that. I skipped no that. No worries. <laughs> I get. I'm excited. Um, the, I know. I know First one that comes to mind for me and probably the most effective in my eyes would be the, the yard signs right in front of the house in, a, in, in that neighborhood. In the arrows. Yeah. Yep. We, we typically do, we'll do a yard sign or two and then we'll do up to 10 arrows to, on the streets around that property directing traffic to the property. All very simply that the signs say is rent own, no banks, uh, easy qualifying, say in some mix of, the, of those terms and the property information line with the extension number. Then they call that, they listen to the property, and then because they called into that line, that's then sent to my email. Whether they leave a message or not, I'm following up with them. I love that, I love that. What's, a, what's another marketing avenue uh, to get people into you guys' funnel besides the yard signs? Sure, we do uh, Craigslist under, for we advertise under for sale by owner and also for rent by owner. And when you're starting out, you want to you want to be posting every day on that Craigslist or lets you renew the ad every 48 hours or so. But you want to be posting every day so you have an active ad all the time going on on there. Now they do get you know flagged or ghosted or deleted by people. You can't control that. You just have to stay vigilant on it and keep posting it. I know a lot of people out there will talk about, oh no, I have this system that will that will post to it from a VA a thousand times a day. That's awesome, but very rarely does that work in that they're not, they're not monitoring it, so they don't, know, they don't know if the ad gets deleted or ghosted, and that's something that, that we do. We'll post the ad, and then if we're posting the ad and not having results, go and look on the public end to make sure that the ad's showing up. That's a place that we advertise also on uh, Zillow for sale by owner. And there are, there are a few other sites that we post to. Rentlinks is a great one that, that is a portal that sends it out like all over the web uh, to all these different websites. It syndicates to a bunch of different websites. So that's a, that's a great one. And we have the same ad, just a description, then a space, and then the property information line. That's how we get our, that's, in short, how we get our buyers. Boom. And before it let, and before we get to the maybe a final uh, third uh, lead, I guess a lead or a marketing mechanism to get people in your funnel, because we have the first two, which is yard signs. Uh, the second one, which is some of these online, I guess, property management sites like Zillow, Craigslist, uh, places like that. Before we get to the third and final one, I just want to highlight that we are, and what you guys are doing that, that may be a little bit different is that you're not first locking down a contract and then marketing that contract to 
buyers per se, you're trying to build up your clientele of buyers so that when you do have a property under contract, you already have the buyers lined up. That was my third, my third one. The third one is a buyer's list because you're going to get a ton of calls about the home and people are going to say, I love your program. I just wish you had houses in my area or that house is too small or excuse me, that house is too big or it doesn't work. Do you have anything else? I'll say, no, oh, Mr. Buyer, no, I'm sorry, we don't. However, we do get new homes every single week. What you want to do is make sure you register on our um, buyers list on our website. You can do that right on the homepage. And that way, whenever, DeRay, we get a new home, you're going to be first to know about it before we advertise to any of our buyers. So oftentimes, still happens to this day, we'll send a blast out to the buyers on our list and we'll get a few people that raise their hand that say they're interested. And so we, we end up selling the home first before it even goes to market oh, to our buyers. I love it. I love it. This has been a, an amazing session, Nick. And I want to, I want to end, end the session with one last thing, just to kind of, you know, put a bow on this. When you sell ultimately to a tenant buyer, how is it that you can sell the property that wasn't able to sell for the past three months, six months, year on the market for the ARV or the other or the market value. So let's say the market value of a property is 200000 and the seller had listed the property with a realtor for the past six months and now the listing is expired. That same $200,000 house, how is it that you can sell that to a tenant buyer for 200000 or 210000 or 220000 How is that the case? Uh, the, that's an interesting question. The reason, the reason is they're not, the majority of them are not concerned about the purchase price. What they're doing or what they're looking for is the opportunity to get in a home. Doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that they're not getting a good deal because they still are getting a good deal. I'll always answer a answer an objection or a question like that with a benefit. So if someone if a buyer says to me, Well, that's that price is too high. I can't do that price. That house is only worth 170 or 175. I'm not interested. I'll say, Oh, Mr. Buyer, you can pay cash or get a loan today? Well, you if so, you're welcome to make us an offer. I mean, if not, our rent to own program, the price is two hundred thousand. Let me tell you why that's a huge benefit to you. So you're locking in your price, Mr. Buyer, today. So now we're finally in an appreciating market where the values are appreciating anywhere from three to 8% per year. I mean, this is a great area, this house since it was probably closer to the 8% per year. So as the values are continuing to climb and continuing to appreciate, you're gaining in that increase in value. And also, any work that you're doing to the home, that and any subsequent increase in equity that's, that's occurring because of the work that you did to the home, that's your benefit, not ours. See, a lot of the investors out there will try to take that from you. We don't, Mr. Buyer, because you deserve that. That's work that you did. You deserve that. We're not going to renegotiate the price in three years, two or three or four years when you're able to get your own loan. So oftentimes, we've had buyers who bought homes with us only 18 months ago. The home is already appraising for sixty dollars to $80,000 more than what they bought it at because of the increase in value in the market and also the worth that they did to the property. So 
it's a huge benefit of our program. There, there, there are no, there's no pitfalls of this. No one's, no one, no one's not coming out of the other side a winner. Yeah, I love that. And I love how you explained it so succinctly. Again, there are many benefits for the buyer. There are many benefits for you as the investor, or you, you as a person staying in the middle of the deal. There are many benefits uh, to the seller. Like there's, it's a win-win across the board if you know how to, uh, how to construct these deals. And uh, it's been simply amazing to kind of walk through this creative strategy with you, Nick. So thank you so much for the time that you've kind of given uh, to the listeners and the nuggets that you've dropped. They've been phenomenal. Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks. What is your favorite Before the Millions book? I would have to say the one that started me on the whole the whole path of of kind of of kind of the the energy and like just understanding things at a deeper level is a leap of perception by Penny Pierce. Okay, that is a new recommendation. I'm gonna have to check that out. Ladies and gentlemen, that recommendation will, will be in the show notes. What's that what's pretty, that book? It's Where? pretty it's yeah, it's pretty deep. But awesome. it's helped transformed. It's helped transform me. I think just understand things at a deeper level, and it it really by understanding myself at a deeper level, I'm able to better help other people understand their situation. So I think there's a lot in there. There's a there's a lot to chew on. I love that. I love that. That'll definitely be in the show notes. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. Up until up until about a I would say about a year ago, I was personally handling every single buyer inquiry that came my way. Every single call, every single email, I was personally handling it. And I wasn't probably not the most open-minded of me, but I didn't want to do it any other way because what I was doing was working. It had worked for years. So I didn't see anything, any reason to change it. Well, I had to because I was just losing my mind. It was it was insane the number of inquiries off this new software that we got for to manage our properties that automatically marketed to a bunch of different websites. I just couldn't handle it anymore. So with Zach's help, Zach Beach, my brother-in-law, he was the one who was actually kind of urging me to use this InvestorView system. So through InvestorFuse, which is um, InvestorFuse is a contact management system for, I'm sure investors are familiar with it, but through that, we built a system, actually with Zach's help, you know, we built a system, which is whenever someone inquires, we'll automatically have our VA download that, that name, a number and email into a contact into uh, investor views, a text, a voice message, and an email goes out to them that says, "Hi, thanks for inquiring. Our rental own you inquired about the rental home program. Our rental own home, our rental home program. It's not a good fit for everyone. First, before we get you in there, check out the video on our website that goes over how our program works. If it's something you're looking to do, give me a call back." So I'm only dealing with, for the most part, I'm only dealing with people who call me back after they've seen the video. There are still a lot of people that don't see the video, but at least it's putting that wall in front of in front of me where most, the majority of the people that I'm speaking with have seen the video and have been educated. Now, a few the plan goes on that a few days later, if they haven't responded, another call, another voicemail, text and email going out to them. Hey, you still interested? You inquired about the home, but 
that's something that I had to do manually for all these years. So that's the, I, I still have to return a lot of phone calls, but it's not as much front loaded as it used to be. And that's all because of investor fees, which sounds like it's almost like a CRM. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's okay. through. Um, we actually have the first version of it still, Podio. Uh, it's through Podio. It's an okay. it's an add on through Podio, or an, I don't know what it's called, an app through Podio. An app. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. But the new system, Investor Views 2.0, which we haven't even switched over to, we haven't switched over to yet because it just seems like they're working out the kinks and everything. That's a standalone system. So eventually we will switch over to it. I just don't think there's a reason to now. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Awesome recommendation. Uh, what do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? I enjoy the fact, Ray, that the reason that I like real estate is that it allows me to have the freedom, the time freedom to pursue my other passions. That's really why I like I like real estate. And also the I just I enjoy working with the buyers and in the coaching because on the coaching end of, of things, it's not like I'm doing anything different. I'm still helping the buyers, but by by having a system of uh, the process like i briefly touched on the process earlier by having that process i'm able to create myself time freedom where i'm able to for the most part uh do what i want how i want to do it as long as i get the work done what were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today a good question. I don't. I don't look at it as uh, as sacrifices. Probably, probably just just by due to my experience um, with my accent and everything. I don't. I don't. I really don't look at anything as a sacrifice. I'm just great. Just grateful for what I have. And um, I don't know. I don't know if that's going too deep. No, no. I think that's a beautiful point of view. Let me replace that word sacrifice with regret. I try not to have any regrets. I think that everything happens for a reason mm -hmm. and everything has happened. I can't wish that it didn't happen. It, it, it's brought me to the exact point that I am today. Like things would be totally different if one little thing was out of place. I feel like it's almost like the matrix. I don't know. Or inception. Yeah. No, you're right. You're <laughs> so, right. So I don't, I don't have that. I don't have a, a single bone of regret. Like, damn, I shouldn't have done that. Like that never happened. Yeah. So I was maybe there for, for a minute, but I immediately prep my mindset to know that, Hey, like that, that was for a reason. Learn from that. And if you don't want this to happen again, make sure it doesn't happen again. But, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I love that. I love that mentality. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? This answer might be, uh, cheating a little bit, but I feel like my dad was just the way that I, the way that I grew up in just the lessons, the lessons that he taught me when I was growing up. I remember, I remember back to one time, I used to wash cars. I had a car washing business when I was younger, before and even after my accident. So I would, well, it was before and, yeah, it was before and after my accident, but mainly before. I had the car washing business when I was 12 or 13 years old, where I would, I had a motor scooter. So I would get on the motor scooter and drive to people's houses with my kit that I had him wash their cars. So basically like a mobile detailing service. I remember I remember after my accident, I was, or it could have been before, I don't know, but I was washing this, I was washing uh, one of, the, one of uh, my parents' cars and I didn't, I just kind of rushed through it. I didn't really do the best job that I could do. My dad called me down from my room and he asked me to come out to the garage. I still remember this. 
he grabbed me and uh, grabbed me by the arm and said, um, is this, so is this the best you can do? And I said, well, no, I kind of, I was on it. I, I was like, I kind of, I kind of rushed through it. I, I don't know. I wasn't in the mood. I didn't want to do it. And he was like, remember, remember something, Nick, you always do the best you can on anything doesn't matter whether you're getting paid for it or not you always do the best you can that's something that always stuck with me yeah i love that i love that no truer words last but not least my man why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions even though we have every intention of getting to the millions this probably is going to go against the grain in a different direction but i think that you have to you have to practice gratitude on a daily basis and be grateful be grateful for what you have by being grateful for what you have that opens the doors to the things that you want in your life yeah i totally agree i love that you know i think about our goals and we'll wrap up with this i think about our goals and we're often in constant pursuit of our goals constant constant pursuit to where mm-hmm. we don't pay attention to the little milestones that we hit along the way like do we never really give those any credit like it's always like no i'm trying to be a millionaire i'm trying to have five properties by the end of the year and it's always working towards that goal and once we get there even that achieving that goal is so short-lived right it's like okay mm-hmm. well, you know, this is this is nothing. When uh, I, I need more, right? It's always more. It's always more. There's always there's always something after, and that's almost like the hamster wheel that we are we're on as humans, and we're never actually satisfied. And for a lot of us, when we're looking towards a goal, it's like, well, I am not going to like you know, for instance, I'm not going to be charitable until I reach X amount of dollars. I don't have any money to give away. Like, why would I give away money when I don't have any money like that? You know, just using this example, but you can, you can apply this to every area of your life. You know, that's a lot of people's mentality. Like once I get, I'll have enough to, I'll I'll have enough to give. Mm -hmm. Right. But what you're saying is like, no, like you have to receive, you have to be, you have to be gratuitous first, right? You have to know that, Hey, of the little I do have, you know, I'm grateful to have this and this is an abundance to what many other people don't, many other people don't have. And the little I do have, I can share this. I can, I can break off pieces. I can give that because giving that is a, is a sign that you're grateful, is that you have gratitude, right? And mm-hmm. by performing that act, by not being, you know, again, most people are like, no, like, wait till I do this, wait till I have this before I can do that. But no, people get it wrong. You need to, you need to be that person, right? You need to already be grateful you need to already have gratitude. You already, you already need to be grateful. You need to celebrate those small wins all the time. Like every single day of progress is beautiful. You need to have, you need to be grateful for that. And that's when you open the floodgates. That's that's when you open the door for more. That's when you, you're, you're opening, you're inviting abundance in your life. So I think that it, it, it's actually not against the grain, but it's, it, it's against the grain in the fact that it's not our intuition. Like it's not our, our set modality, right? Our set modality is like, wait until I get to give, but we need to flip it to to be uh, gratuitous, to give first. And that's how the floodgates mm-hmm. open. I love how you ended that. Look, this has been amazing, Nick. We've gotten so much from you. We've gotten a ton of value. You dropped value bomb after value bomb. I, I, I thank you for sharing your story and being so open. And then we learned about the, the tenant buying process. And man, I know this is something we haven't covered before. So I know the listeners are like, this was awesome. If the listeners want to learn a little bit more about you, get to know about some of the things you guys have going on, where can they find some of your information? If they're interested, I don't, you know, it's not a 
definitely not a good fit for everyone and I'm not pretending to be all things to all people or we're not rather. There is free webinar. It's called the On Your Terms webinar that they can get registered for. There's probably over 60 minutes of content in there. And if it makes sense for them, like I said, it's not for everyone. They can, they're prompted at the end of that webinar to take the next step. That's going to be over at beforethemillions.com forward slash SRC. I think it's going to be jam-packed full of information. Uh, head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash SRC. And that's where you can find out more about Nick and uh, his company and what they have going on. This has been amazing, Nick, again. Um, until next time, my man, I'll talk to you very soon. Thanks for having me, Deray. It was fun. 